Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 9. It's late April 1982 and the British have retaken the island of South Georgia after a sharp fight against the Argentinians who'd seized the frozen outcrop the day after the Falklands were invaded. The Argentinian fleet had returned to its base after the initial landing on the 2nd of April. Its welcome as the force which had regained the islands muted by the United Nations resolution calling for a withdrawal and the news that the British had dispatched a task force. It would be at least two weeks before the British arrived, so the Argentinians spent the time replenishing their ships and fixing a few mechanical defects. After London had declared a maritime exclusion zone of 200 nautical miles from the centre of the Falklands, any Argentinian ship entering this area was likely to be sunk by British submarines that were already in the South Atlantic. At least, that's what the Argentinians believed. Submarines Spartan and the Splendid had headed off to the South Atlantic on the 1st of April when it suddenly dawned on the British Cabinet and the Ministry of Defence that Buenos Aires was serious about invading the islands. By the 12th of April, these two nuclear submarines were on station, but what the Argentinians didn't know was that the British sub-commanders had not yet received permission to sink any ships. Remember, the cabinet under Margaret Thatcher was still desperately trying to negotiate a way out rather than launching a full-scale war, and the exclusion zone was a bluff at this stage. There were four Argentinian ships based at mainland ports and about to set sail to the Falklands with supplies. These included the Formosa, loaded with army rations and 10 brigades' heavy equipment, and Rio Carcanara with army weapons and stores, as well as the Ciudad de Cordoba with three brigades' equipment, and Isla de los Estados with food and other stores. At the Falklands, things were not going according to plan. The level of food reserves actually dipped to less than 48 hours at one stage, so the Junta had to release these four ships from the mainland to head into the exclusion zone. They were all forced to operate independently and unescorted, and the Junta correctly assumed that the British would not attack unarmed solitary merchant ships while negotiations continued. Formosa arrived at Port Stanley first, bringing food for 15 days. Three brigades' equipment on the Ciudad de Cordoba, however, never arrived. The ship hit a rock soon after sailing and returned to the mainland. The Rio Carcerana and the Isla de los Estados eventually made it to the Falklands, but those on board were going to wish they hadn't. They couldn't unload quickly enough and were going to be trapped on the island. Captain Edgardo Delechina of the Rio Carcanara said the material on board was a mixture of jet fuel, diesel, lorries and even a whole load of television sets for the kelpers, the Falkland Islanders. I could not understand that one, he told journalists later. He sailed on the 22nd of April as the fight for South Georgia began in earnest, as you heard last episode. At about the same time, the SAS and SPS and Royal Marines were retaking that icy island 800 miles away from the Falklands. Buenos Aires decided that an air bridge was the only way to supply their total number of men in the Falklands, which numbered over 10,000. A major effort was made using C-130 Hercules and Fokker F-28s of the Argentine Air Force, Lockheed Electras as well as F-28s of the Navy, and Boeing 737s of Aerolíneas Argentinas, as well as BAC-3s of the internal airline Austral. By the time the air bridge was closed, the 29th of April, 5,500 tons of cargo, mainly ammunition and weapons, had been flown in. But this was not enough. The units dug in around Stanley, Goose Green, Darwin and other strategic positions did not have enough food. That was going to be a big problem for the Argentinians as the battles commenced. 
There's been quite a bit of analysis of this period by historians, both British and Argentinian. When Admiral Anaya, the Junta hardliner, realized that the British were going to try and retake South Georgia first, his response was to write off any defense as untenable, and he was thinking of telling his men there to surrender without a fight. Then he changed his mind and sent a nominal force of around 40 men under Lieutenant Commander Luis Lagos aboard the submarine Santa Fe. You know what happened to them if you listen to episode 8. The British damaged the sub and it was beached. Once the news of the British success on South Georgia percolated through Argentinian society, they were crestfallen. Argentina's presence on South Georgia had lasted a grand total of 23 days, and the British took 180 prisoners, including Senor Davidoff's hapless scrap metal workers. The damaged and beached Santa Fe was the first vessel lost to Argentina in the war. While the prisoners were returned pretty soon, only Astiz, the butcher, was not. He was flown to Great Britain, as you heard about, to be interrogated about his involvement in the disappeared students of the 1970s and the rapes and murders of nuns, as well as other human rights abuses. When South Georgia fell, Buenos Aires was in a pickle. According to Argentinian sources, this marked what they called the start of a massive distortion of events by the junta. Official communiques boasted of what they claimed was a prolonged and heroic defense against overwhelming British forces, with commandos holding out in the frozen wilderness for days. That was a lie. But Junta's lie. Military dictatorships make a living and a dying by lying, as we've seen with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Much later, in 1983, the poor senior Argentine officer ashore Lieutenant Commander Lagos was court-martialed for contravening Argentina's military code by surrendering without having exhausted his ammunition. But he was acquitted, and rightly so. After all, didn't the Junta claim he fought a prolonged and heroic fight? Senor Davidov's scrap metal remained uncollected, and after the war he failed to get a refund. That's the business of war for you. As the last days of April 1982 passed, the Argentines made the final preparations to meet the British. Their fleet had sailed and was now exercising in the shallow coastal waters where British submarines could not enter. Most of the air units were deployed to makeshift bases in the south of Argentina from where the Falklands would be in range. That would be a big problem for British shipping in particular. At this point, the Argentinians believed the main landing force was on board the fleet heading their way. It wasn't. The Marines and other units were still at Ascension Island. The task force headed their way was supposed to entice the Argentinian fleet out of the coastal zone and into battle. The Argentinian submarine San Luis entered the exclusion zone on the 29th of April 1982, but was ordered to patrol rather than attack any vessels. The sister sub Salta was in port, unable to join the mission because her propeller was too noisy, and the older Santa Fe was of course put out of action by the British in South Georgia. Her sister ship, the Santiago del Estero, was not even a submarine anymore. It couldn't submerge. So in what the Argentinians hoped would be a cunning ploy, they sailed her from the base at Mar del Plata with a great deal of flag-waving and then hid her in a nearby harbor, Bahia Blanca, hoping the British would be duped into believing she was somewhere in the South Atlantic. Two other modern and German-designed subs, the Santa Cruz and San Juan, were still under construction and could not be made ready. The British intelligence gap I mentioned last episode was a gaping chasm. They had no idea that the Argentinians had only one submarine that was operational. Had they known this, some of the tactical decision-making may have changed. 
So on the 29th of April, the deep-sea trawler Narwhal reported that they'd spotted the British fleet. Narwhal was one of the civilian vessels with a naval officer on board taking orders from Argentinian naval intelligence. The British eventually figured out what was going on, and the fate of the Narwhal is for a later podcast. Friday, April the 30th was eventful, at least when it came to negotiations. The United States formally announced it was ending its even-handed neutrality in favour of Great Britain, and the British announced that the Maritime Exclusion Zone was now a total exclusion zone, with aircraft and ships liable to be attacked within the area. The main point of this is very important, folks, because hundreds of Argentinian sailors were about to lose their lives because of this legality. The main implication of their total exclusion zone message was that any aircraft or ship approaching the zone could be attacked. They need not have entered it. If they were sailing towards the great circle drawn around the Falklands and they were Argentinian, they'd be sunk or shot down if they were aeroplanes. Vice Admiral Lombardo said after the war that all the members of the Argentinian Navy understood this warning implicitly. The allegations were going to be thrown around in a while about the diplomatic message, but the Navy knew full well what the note on policy meant when it was delivered by the Swiss Embassy in Buenos Aires. And the note said this, amongst other things. Her Majesty's Government now wishes to make clear that any approach on the part of Argentine warships, including submarines, naval auxiliaries or military aircraft, which could amount to a threat to interfere with the mission of British forces in the South Atlantic, will encounter the appropriate response. Lombardo said afterwards this was a clear warning that the attacks may take place outside of the exclusion zone. In fact, the Junta read this diplomatic note at the time and thought the British were actually planning to sail towards the mainland and were probably going to try to target the airbase at Rio Grande, neutralizing the Exocet-equipped Super Etendard aircraft there. The British had no plan to strike Rio Grande. A classic military intel situation had developed where the defenders, with all the facts, presumed the well-oiled military machine called the British Empire would naturally have this information and tactically would obviously strike early at the most important target, Rio Grande airfield. It was either that or they'd place the all-important ships in mortal danger. The British didn't, and their ships would be in grave danger indeed. On the 30th of April, the Argentinians thought a British Special Force unit had landed on the mainland to attack the airbases, so they sent a Huey helicopter from the Army's 601 Combat Aviation Battalion to search the coastline near the Commodoro Rivadavia airbase. A tragedy unfolded when the Huey crashed and heavy mist. All 11 men aboard were killed. The three-man chopper crew, two officers and six soldiers from the military college. One of the officers was Colonel Clodoveo Aravello, the most senior-ranking Argentinian serviceman to die in the entire war. It was starting badly for Buenos Aires and was about to get much worse. The 1st of May dawned, and for Argentinians, this was known as the formal start of the Falklands War, although the British had believed that was the day of the invasion, the 2nd of April. The reason why was the bombing of Port Stanley Airport by the British, which was an extraordinary feat of aviation endurance. First, the action of the aircraft carriers Hermes and Invincible, each with a squadron of sea harriers and many helicopters, along with 10 destroyers, and frigates supported by three supply ships gave the impression of an imminent attack. The task force was to conduct operations so that the Argentinians would believe that a major landing was imminent. That was to draw the enemy navy and air force out of the bases and into action. The only British who were going to set foot on the islands right now were the SAS and special boat service. Their mission was to collect intelligence 
and avoid direct contact with the enemy. This game of cat and mouse was beginning to work for the British. Operation Black Buck was so unbelievably difficult, it's difficult to believe that it was successful. Air Chief Marshal Sir Michael Beetham, who headed up the RAF and was one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was worried about the Argentinian air threat. It was a worry shared by the head of the Army, General Sir Edwin Bramall, if not much by the Navy. The idea initially of attacking the bases closest to the Falklands and southern Argentina made no sense to Beetham, because the logistics to achieve this were formidable. It would take 17 in-flight refueling tankers to get just one bomber from Ascension Island to southern Argentina and back. The tankers would need refueling themselves as they circled the South Atlantic waiting for a rendezvous. It was also no good sending one bomber to Rio Grande and the other air bases. It's really difficult to hit a runway from two miles above the ground using a standard bomb. In those days, a smart bomb would need someone on the ground to guard these in, so the best chance lay in dropping the bomb load across the runway at an angle of about 30 degrees. The mathematical calculation resulted in a 50-50 chance of getting one bomb and a load of more than 20 on the target. Would one bomb be enough to knock out Stanley Airport, wondered the RAF. So they decided they would send at least four bombers to hit one base, which meant 76 refueling tankers. There just weren't enough crews or planes for this, and Ascension Island didn't have the parking space for that number anyway. The War Cabinet thought that bombing bases in the north was more feasible, but would have no effect on the enemy's operations, although it would be a shock. So it was decided to attack Stanley Airport instead. This would be undertaken by an obsolete plane called the Vulcan, once the vanguard of British nuclear deterrent. They were due to be scrapped once the Tornado multi-role combat plane came into service, but they were all the RAF had to fly what was called the longest bombing raid in history. The crews had practiced for up to 18 hours a day using dummy 1,000-pound bombs on RAF ranges on the Isle of Man, Cape Wrath, and into the sea off the Yorkshire coast. The techniques of air-to-air refueling were vital, along with extreme low-level flying. Then the Vulcans were flown to Ascension Island on the 28th of April. John Reeves of 50 Squadron was the lead bomber, and a second would fly as replacement, should something go wrong. And go wrong it did. Reeves had been in the air for a grand total of three minutes when he broke radio silence to announce that his window refused to close, and he had to turn back. Vulcan number X-Ray Mike 607 and crew of the 101 Squadron were now gobsmacked. They'd followed Reeves into the air, but only as a backup. Now they were the main event. They had expected to fly part of the way, then be called back to Ascension. Thrumming along on a diet of beef, ham and cheese sandwiches and flasks of hot coffee, they faced 15 hours of continuous flying, 17 refueling operations, and the unknown of trying to bomb Stanley Airfield and then get home. While the pilot and navigator got on with the job, bomb aimer Flight Lieutenant Bob Wright settled down in his cramped quarters below the flight deck, separated by a short ladder and a curtain, and passed the time reading a paperback that later he swore was called Birds of Prey. The Vulcan also carried Flight Lieutenant Dick Russell, who oversaw the Vulcan's aerial matings with the Victor K-2 tankers flying at 300 knots. Pilot Flight Lieutenant Martin Withers guided the bomber's probe into the refueling basket, trailing 60 feet behind each tanker, a giant shuttlecock in the sky. Just before 4 a.m. on May the 1st, 150 miles from Stanley, the Vulcan began its descent to 300 feet to avoid radar until 40 miles out, 
Then it would climb back to at least 10,000 feet to avoid missiles. Meanwhile, Bob Wright calculated the approach to the target, feeding the information into a computer which issued simple flying instructions to the pilot. Withers then held the wings level and at their appropriate moment, the computer released the bombs. They had installed a carousel inertial navigation system from British Airways out of the box, which indicated that they were two miles off course. Considering there was no GPS these days, it was closer than it sounds, Withers altered course. They then spotted Stanley below through a break in the heavy cloud and the bomb doors opened. And at just past 20 past four in the morning, 21 1,000 pound bombs cased in iron, almost 10 tons of high explosive, began falling at intervals of a quarter of a second. The Vulcan was still three miles from the airport, out over the sea. The momentum would take the bombs the rest of the way. The last bomb was gone and Withers veered sharply starboard in a routine evasive maneuver. It took 18 seconds for the bombs to hit the ground. Down below, Air Force Officer Major Alberto Iana Rialdo was about to experience what it feels like when a 1,000 bomb explodes close by. I was sitting in an armchair in the control tower, deep in thought, when an explosion of the first bomb suddenly shook me back to reality, and I found myself facing a red cloud which swept towards the tower, smashing all the window panes and shaking the building. He was knocked unconscious. When I came round, I found myself under an armchair and heard Captain Dovici moaning he'd fallen down the stairs and badly hurt his spine. It was chaos at Stanley Airport. Major Jan Ariello rushed outside and found people running back and forth. Wounded men were screaming and the anti-aircraft guns were firing and flashes of red were exploding in the sky. White-orange missiles were flying. It was our baptism of fire, he said. Three men were killed there. Paulo Romero, a member of the Marine Anti-Aircraft Battalion, and two Air Force men, Hector Bordon and Guillermo Garcia, all were conscripts from the class of 1962 and were buried in the Stanley Civilian Cemetery later that day. Several others were injured. The damage put the runway out of action. The Vulcan crew flashed a single code word, Superfuse, to Ascension reporting the mission complete. Now they had to somehow make it all the way home. They had issues of one refueling basket at a point, and were listening on high-frequency radio to the BBC World Service when they heard the news of the bombing raid. They were talking about us, and we weren't even home, said Wright. We had to pinch ourselves. Reconnaissance pictures taken the next day showed a huge crater in the centre of the runway. The other 20 bombs had landed either side of the tarmac, but did damage some park aircraft and equipment. Well, with that, we must end the episode. Next, we'll look at the waves of sea harriers that followed up the Vulcan bombing run, how the Argentinians downed their own mirage and the sinking of the General Belgrano, a catastrophic event for Buenos Aires and one which caused international repercussions for the British. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. And please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase visibility. Or you can contact me by emailing through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.